Luke chapter 1 this morning, where we will be, Luke chapter 1. We spent the last several weeks in Luke chapter 1, and for me, it has been uh, an enriching time. I hope it has been for you as well. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we've looked at God dealing with them, and we've tried to ask and answer the question, what do we learn about God from this passage? What do we learn about God from uh, His interaction here with Zechariah and Elizabeth? And We've learned a few things. The first thing we learned was in verses 5, 6, and 7. We learned that God chooses His servants. That God picks His children to serve Him in special ways. He chooses His servants for special service. And particularly from Zechariah and Elizabeth, we saw that God chose them to have a child, although they were unable to have children. And He did that so that it would be known, it would be clear that what is going to happen in their lives, only God can get credit for, only God can receive the glory for. So God chooses His servants for their good and for His glory. In verses 8, 9, and 10, we saw that God prepares His servants. If He chooses His servants, then He's also going to prepare His servants. We've looked at the life of Zechariah and how God has given him faith. He's a faithful man. He's a set-apart man. Uh, he's a sincere man. Scripture calls him righteous and blameless. God has been using all the things in his life to prepare him for this point in his life, for this service in his life. But even particularly out of the passage, we saw that God had used the pinnacle of his priestly service. As he goes into the temple to burn incense, as his heart is excited and thrilled, he waits until that moment when Zechariah is most alert, most passionate. And he waits also until Zechariah is in the middle of the temple, in the middle of his duties, when he's also most reverent and most humble before God. And it's there that God calls him to this service of being the father of John the Baptist. So God chose his servants. God prepared his servants. We also saw that God blesses his servants, right? Verses 11, 12, and 14. Particularly for Zechariah and Elizabeth, he blessed them with answered prayer. That's the first thing the angel said to Zechariah there in verse 12. He said, don't be afraid. Verse 13, do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. Our God is a God who answers prayers. Our God cares about the desires of our hearts. Our God cares about us coming before Him in prayer with prayer requests. Cast your cares upon the Lord, for He cares for you. And so for Zechariah and Elizabeth, God blessed them by answering prayer. For us today, God blesses us by answering our prayers, hearing our prayers, allowing us to come before Him in prayer. But God also blessed Zechariah and Elizabeth. Even in the details of their life, we highlighted that God chose the name for this baby that they're going to have, and His name needs to be John. And John means God has shown grace. Jehovah is gracious. The Lord is is gracious. Particularly for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They didn't earn God's blessing of having a child, did they? They weren't doing anything that qualified them to have a child for God to meet their need. No, God did that out of His pure grace. But even on a bigger picture, God's going to be gracious to us, gracious to Israel. He's 
about to pour out His grace through His Son, Jesus. And John is the beginning of that process. So that even us, we can look and read the pages of Scripture and see the name John the Baptist and the story of John and remember that God is pouring out His grace here upon the world. And this is the beginning of that process. God had blessed Zechariah even in the details. I'm going to be gracious to you. But He blessed Zechariah also. We looked at in joy and gladness. That's the result of your son. He's going to bring you joy. He's going to bring you gladness because he's going to be a child of mine, an instrument in my hand, and I'm going to use him to prepare the way of the Lord, to turn the hearts of the sons back to their fathers, to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. He's going to bring you great joy and great gladness. Even for us. So what happens when our children are used by God. What happened when we're used by God? God instills within us joy and gladness. But last week we also highlighted ultimately God blesses His servants through what? The cross. The ultimate blessing in all the universe. But Jesus came for you, came for me, that God has provided a way of salvation that we can be His servants for His service. So it has been an enriching passage for me as we have looked at the life here of Zachariah and Elizabeth and what God is preparing to do in their life. Today, as we pick up in verse 18, we continue to learn something about God. Today, we see God's fatherly compassion and God's fatherly compare, uh, uh, care for us. We look at, in verses 18 through 23, God disciplines His servants. He chooses His servants. He prepares His servants. He blesses His servants. And today, He disciplines His servants. And He disciplines His servants for their own benefit, for their own good, and for His glory. Now, discipline is never fun, right? Nobody gets excited when the word discipline is brought up. Uh, you don't uh, hope that you get to unwrap on your birthday a big box of discipline. Nobody's excited about that word or studying God's discipline. I'm sure right now as you're sitting there, your heart's not just overly thrilled about what we're looking at this morning. And that's because discipline is widely misunderstood, isn't it? In fact, when you mention discipline or you mention God's discipline, you mention church discipline, automatically people think that is something that only the radicals do. Or they hunt everybody down and they begin to uh, pound on them because of their sin. Every little mistake they make they just pounce on them and press them into the ground. Even people think that about God. God's discipline on our life is just God being a cosmic killjoy, pressing us into the ground, hammering us for every little mistake that we make. Discipline is widely misunderstood. And so before we get into the passage this morning, I want us to take just a quick survey through Scripture of what the Bible has to say of God's discipline. Since it has such a bad rap, what does Scripture actually have to say about it? There are many passages throughout the Bible that highlight God's discipline. I'll first point out to you 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Such an interesting passage there because God is telling David that I'm going to place one on your throne. Your throne is going to endure forever. He's really pointing to Jesus in that passage. But in verse 14, he says something interesting, not necessarily about Jesus, but about the sons of David that will be sitting on the throne, on his throne through the ages. He says, I shall be to him 
the one who sits on your throne, I shall be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. What is so interesting about that verse is God paints his discipline in a very favorable light. I'm going to be a father to the one sitting on your throne, and he will be to me a son. We're going to have an intimate relationship. He will know me, and I will know him, and we'll enjoy each other, and I'm going to discipline him when he messes up. Automatically, in our mind, that, that doesn't go well together. We think of discipline as a bad thing, but here God is painting it as a good thing. We're going to be so close, such like a father and a son, that I'll be able to discipline him when he messes up. We can look at Job chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. It says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. You know the story of Job? And the great heartache that Job is in. And so what we see in that passage, those couple of verses, that even in the midst of such heartache, whoever accepts divine correction will be restored and blessed. And why is that? Because God's discipline does what? Drives us back to God. God is saying discipline, even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and heartache, is good because it brings you closer it pushes you back to me sometimes more forceful than in other ways but nonetheless drives you back to me psalm chapter 50 verse 17 talking about the wicked and the evil person the psalmist says you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you so in contrast to welcoming god's discipline the evil and wicked person hates god's discipline why is that in their prideful, stubborn heart, they don't like to be corrected. They don't have any desire to be driven back to God. Psalm 94, 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father does His son in whom He delights. Proverbs 12.1 Inspired Scripture actually says Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge but he who hates reproof is stupid. Revelation New Testament chapter 3 verse 19 Our Lord Jesus speaking to a church says Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. That's coming from the mouth of our Lord to the church, His bride. If I love you, I reprove you and discipline you. And if I reprove and discipline you, I love you. So take my discipline and be zealous and repent. Learn from it. So what we learn just out of a brief survey of Scripture concerning God's discipline is that it is good and it is a needed action taken in our lives. It's for our growth, it's for our benefit, it's for our righteousness and our holiness. And so it's not a foreign thing that we find in the Bible that God 
would discipline his people, is it? It's actually a quite common thing. Let's look now in our passage in Luke chapter 1, verse 18. As we see in Zechariah's life, God's discipline. The angel has just spoken to Zechariah. They're still in the temple at this point in time. They're still right in front of the Holy of Holies. Zechariah still has some fear left in his bones here. And this is his response to the angel in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. By the way, men, take note there. That is the proper way to refer to your wife's age. My wife is advanced in years. Verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. The people who were outside praying in verse 10. They were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time service was ended, he went to his home. His wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months, she kept herself hidden. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. Take away my reproach among people. As we come to this passage, the first thing we want to look at is the need for God's discipline. That's found there in verse 18. The need for God's discipline. Why does God need to discipline us in the first place? And really, isn't the answer quite obvious for us? It's the same reason we have to discipline our children. Sinfulness. The need for God's discipline in the world is because we are sinful creatures. Corrupted hearts, tainted minds, wrongful thinking, wandering off every path we can ever find ourselves on. That's what we see there in Zechariah and his response in verse 18 to the angel. The response of this set-apart priest, the one who's in the temple burning incense, the one who's labeled as righteous and blameless before the Lord, his response is complete doubt, isn't it? His cry is one of impossibility. This is impossible. I'm too old. How can this happen? How can this be? My wife is advanced in years. We're past the age. We've never been able to have children. And now we're past the age of being able to have children. A cry of impossibility. The desire that Zechariah had, had longed for for so long, the desire of having a child, the desire that he had taken to God in prayer for decades, is now met with the doubt of an old man. Why? Why a change all of a sudden? Why is he now not believing 
this message from the angel. Don't you think Zechariah, when praying and asking God for a child, believed God could give him a child? I'm barren. I have no cure and no hope. But God can give me hope. God can give me a miracle. God can provide us a child. So for years, Zechariah has prayed for a child, believing God is able to give him a child. And yet here at the message of the angel, he doubts. Why? And I'll tell you the answer. The answer is the power of unbelief. He doubts that God will do what he says he'll do. He doubts the message of the angel because of the power of unbelief. That power of unbelief is rooted so deep in the sinful human heart and is at times so overbearing that we can't overcome it. He's a righteous man. He's a holy man, a blameless man, a set-apart man, and yet still succumbs to the power of unbelief. And as a Jewish priest, Zechariah should never have asked such questions as he did. He would have known the Old Testament and he should have remembered the births of Isaac, Samson, Samuel. And he should have remembered and known that if God can bring about something like the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah once, he could surely do it again, right? As a priest, Zechariah should have known better. But what we see is that although he is faithfully and sincerely walking with God, it was not immu- he was not immune to his own sinful heart, was he? Not immune to the power of unbelief that's rooted within him. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Luke, said this of Zechariah and his doubt. He said, He thought of nothing but the arguments of mere human reason and sense. And it often happens in religious matters that where reason begins, faith ends. Because here we have a righteous man who was overcome by the sinful power of unbelief. And in that moment, his faith in God's power, his faith in God's ability was quickly diminished. How can this be? My mind, my logic says it's impossible. My reason says I'm too old. How can this be? And so the untrusting, rather the the self-trusting thoughts of his mind replaced the faith that he had in God with a finite human understanding of the situation. Unbelief is one of the first corruptions which came into humanity's heart, isn't it? In the garden, on the day of the fall, when Eve believed the devil rather than God, she had unbelief concerning what God had said, what God had promised in the garden. Because again, unbelief is one of those deep-rooted sins by which all saints are plagued with and very few are freed from on this side of eternity. Throughout Scripture, We're given evidence that true believers sometimes fall into doubt and unbelief. We can talk of Abraham. We can talk of Isaac. Talk of Moses. Look at Peter and others all throughout the Bible who are plagued with doubt and unbelief at times in their life. And within our own today, our own corrupted, stubborn, prideful hearts, 
The power of unbelief is unfortunately strong, isn't it? Truth be told, if we're being honest, we have all succumbed to unbelief and doubt. Every one of us, though we are saved, we're still battling our sinful hearts. That is the need for God's discipline. That is why God has to discipline. Because we are imperfect beings in desperate need of correction, aren't we? And we recognize it and realize it in our own lives. Why am I thinking this? Why am I behaving this way? Why am I desiring these things? Why am I doing what I know I should not be doing? Why is my heart and my flesh going for what my spirit and my mind says is impure and and wrong? So the need for God's discipline is because we follow our own weak, our own prideful hearts. We listen to ourselves and not to God. Let's now look at the reason for God's discipline. The needs because our own sinful hearts. But what is the reason for God's discipline? Because someone will ask the question, what's the big deal? It's just a, a simple curiosity, a simple question. It, it's just a little bitty doubt on Zachariah's part. What's wrong with his questioning? Why is his doubt so bad? Isn't it understandable? He's old. Isn't Zechariah just human anyway? How is he supposed to know of a miracle? Why is this such a big deal? Well, Zechariah doubting the angel and the message of the angel is what? It's a doubt and distrust upon the promise of God, isn't it? That's what the angel says. He, he responds to Zechariah in verse 19. I was sent to speak to you. You doubt me, you doubt the one who sent me to speak to you and give you this message. And so to doubt this message from God is to doubt God's truthfulness. That's a serious offense, isn't it? It's a serious offense because our God is only truthful. Our God is no deceiver. Our God is no liar. Jesus Himself even identifies as the truth. John 14, 6, doesn't He? Our God is only truthful. So to question God's truthfulness is to question God Himself. Doubting God's promise is doubting God's person. I would ask you these questions... Has God ever gone back on His Word? Has God ever betrayed our trust? Has God ever lied, deceived, manipulated, coerced us, or led us to doubt His actions in His Word? And we would answer with a resounding, most certainly not. Never has God led us astray. Never has God gone back on His Word. Never has God betrayed our trust, lied to us, deceived us, manipulated us. All throughout the ages, God has been sure upon His Word. And when God says something, you can count on it as true, right? It was true when He told the Israelites they would have the promised land. Living in it today. It was true when David was chosen to be king and God told him that his throne would endure forever. And it has with Christ. 
God's word was true when he told Israel that he would free her from Egypt. And he most certainly did. It was true when Jesus nailed to the cross said it is finished. We have no reason to ever doubt God, church. Doubting God is a peculiar sin that quickly rouses the attention of God. Doubt is what caused Adam and Eve to sin. We've covered that. Doubt is what caused Israel to constantly rebel and go her own way, thinking that her way was better than God's. Doubt is what led to the persecution of God's church. God is not real. The church isn't real. Doubt is what leads you and I to questioning God Himself, right? Doubt prevented Israel from entering the promised land and wandering in the desert for 40 years. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, speaking of that instance, says that they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. There's a lesson for us, right? Doubt and unbelief only leads to wondering. God takes no delight in those who doubt, who do not believe Him, because doubting and unbelief they lead to the pathway of rebellion. That's why the angel's response here is so stern to Zechariah. Because this isn't some innocent question. This is serious doubt on Zechariah's behalf. That's still true today, isn't it? That God does not like unbelief. He despises unbelief in Him. It's still true that unbelief and doubt would bring the discipline of God upon the child of God. And yet it's not true of just doubt and unbelief. It's true of all unrepentant sin, isn't it? All sin that proceeds from our hearts in action or thought or desire, God despises and is worthy of the discipline of God. So we see the need for God's discipline is our own sinful hearts, but the reason for God's discipline is the action that comes from those sinful hearts. Believing the sin that we wage war against that is within us. However, here, God's discipline doesn't just show His hatred for unbelief. It shows the surety and the certainty of God's promises coming true. That's what you see in verse 20. See, it, it isn't just simply doubt that God disciplines Zechariah for. It is doubting God that he disciplined Zechariah for. Doubting that God would do what he said he would do. That's an important difference. It's okay to doubt something that may or may not be true. To question it, to analyze it, to seek facts, to understand it. It is quite another thing to doubt God when you know he is fully capable of all he says he will do. And so the angel makes this case to Zechariah. And he makes it there in verse 20 with two words. This case that, of course, whatever God's going to accomplish uh, will be accomplished. And he uses two words there. You'll be silent until these things take place. Implying that God will keep His promise. But then at the end of verse 20 there, the last statement, you'll be silent until these things take place and they will be fulfilled in their time. 
explicitly stating that what God sets out to do will be accomplished. That's an important truth for us to learn here. For us as Christians and believers to hide deep within our hearts. That God will accomplish all that He sets out and desires to do, right? That there is nothing, not even the doubt of an old man, that can thwart God's purposes, right? You flip over to Isaiah chapter 46 with me real quick. Roll over to Isaiah 46. Verse 9, God is speaking. And He says, Remember, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. Verse 10, Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will what? Accomplish all my purposes. Everything I desire to do, everything I long to do, every part of my will will be accomplished by my power, my strength. So you and I, we must not doubt that when God says a thing, that thing will be fulfilled. We must also take comfort in that, right? Take comfort that no one, no thing can get God off of His plan and prevent God from doing what He desires. Isn't that particularly important for us when it comes to our salvation, our redemption? Isn't that important for us with all the good things in life that He has planned for us? Isn't that important for our eternity in heaven with Him. That when God says, you will be with me in paradise, no one and no thing can change that. God will accomplish everything. And that's what we see. The whole reason He disciplines Zechariah is because you doubt that I am unable to do what I said I will do. You doubt that I will hold true to my word. We can understand here then, can't we? With all the good that God's promised for us to do, with, with all the ability that God has to carry out His desires, we can understand now why it is such an offense to God to doubt Him. I have given nothing but good to you. Promised nothing but good to you. And you know there is none who can stop me. Why do you doubt? So the need... For God's doubts, our sinful heart. The reason is because we act on those sinful hearts. And let's now ask the question, what is the nature of God's discipline? Let's look at the nature of God's discipline here. Verses 20-23 through 23 in Zechariah's life. We know that His discipline is not eternal. It is temporary. But how does God discipline? What does He employ in his discipline. My dad used a belt. And I remember the first time I turned around and looked at my mom and said, that didn't hurt. She did it again. I turned around and said, that didn't hurt either. She said, wait till your dad gets home. My dad's belt was made out of horse hair. And it was not pleasant. 
Some people use a twig to discipline their children. Others use time out, count to ten. There's various forms of things that people employ in their discipline. What does God use? How does God discipline His children? It's not quite fair for us to compare God to our earthly disciplinarians. We must examine God not as we know earthly discipline, but as we can understand divine discipline from Scripture. And we see that in Zechariah's life, his discipline is peculiar and heavy. The heavy chastisement. His discipline is that he will be unable to speak. Actually, a rather fitting discipline, right? The tongue that was unwilling to speak, believing praise to God, will now be silent until that is proven true to him. Zechariah's discipline, it was long, it was difficult, and it was public. And all three of those for a very specific reason. It was difficult because Zechariah would not be able to relate his vision in the temple. He would not be able to fulfill his priestly duties. And he would not be able to share the thrill and excitement with his wife in a conversation explaining that God is going to bless us with a child. It's a difficult discipline. Not to mention how much we as human beings are dependent on our words for even the slightest of communication. His discipline would be public because he was still unable to perform his duties. Look at verses 21, 22, and 23. The people, they're waiting for Zechariah. They're wondering why it's taking him so long because usually priests move real quick when they're that far into the temple. In verse 22, he came out to them, yet he's unable to speak. They realize he's seen a vision. And at the end of verse 22, he had to keep making signs to them because he, he stayed mute, still unable to speak. In verse 23, Luke just ends it. When his time was up, he went home. Still unable to speak. So his discipline was public because after burning the incense, the priest would have to come out and recite a few more rituals to the people and lead them in a certain kind of prayer. Zechariah was unable to do that. Had to motion with his hands. And that is extremely humiliating, isn't it? Each time he would become frustrated over the difficulty to communicate, Zechariah would be reminded of his awful doubt upon the truthfulness of God. But his discipline would also be long. Long because he would be condemned to silence for nine long months. Every day being reminded of his unbelief and lack of faith. For a priest, that's tough. You have to do a lot of communicating when you're a priest. That's tough. For a friend, even harder. For a husband, that's probably even frustrating that I can't communicate. Can't convey my thoughts. But for a person, it's humbling. Extremely humbling. Zechariah's discipline, though long, difficult, and public, was given for a specific reason, wasn't it? 
What is that reason? What is the nature of God's discipline? To make it known and unforgettable. Don't you think Zechariah probably learned his lesson after John was born? Probably had a fear of doubting God again. There's no question for you and I with Zechariah's discipline that God drove home the point. I would be willing to say that for the rest of his life, Zechariah remembered the time he doubted God. We also notice something else here about Zechariah's sin that warranted his discipline. And this is very important practically for you and I today. His doubt and his unbelief robbed him of his full joy in God, didn't it? Robbed him of enjoying God's presence, enjoying God's blessing. A believer's faith in God does determine how much they get to enjoy and share the realities of God or how much they miss out on them because of their unbelief. Faith does not warrant more blessings from God. Don't mistake what I'm saying. Your faith does not warrant more blessings from God. Your faith determines how much you get to enjoy those blessings from God. Your unbelief, your doubt, it robs us of peace. Doubt robs us of comfort. It robs us of joy. It robs us of holiness. It takes a relationship with God that is meant to be fruitful and abundant in all things good. And it starves that relationship and squelches the blessings that come from such a relationship. Doubt cripples believers. So here's our lesson. Unbelief or doubting God robs us of our full enjoyment of God and His plans for our life and can warrant the discipline of God in our lives. Because remember, to doubt God's promises is to doubt God's person. Again, J.C. Ryle, the gentleman I quoted earlier, said this. He said, Let us watch and pray daily against this soul-running sin. Concessions to it rob believers of their inward peace weaken their hands in the day of battle, bring clouds over their hopes, and make their chariot wheels drive heavily. According to the degree of our faith will be our enjoyment of Christ's salvation, our patience in the day of trial, and our victory over the world. Unbelief, in short, is the true cause of a thousand spiritual diseases and once allowed to nestle in our hearts will eat at us as does a canker in all that respects the pardon of our sins and the acceptance of our souls the duties of our peculiar station and the trials of our daily life let it be a settled maxim in our religion to trust every word of God implicitly and to beware of unbelief. End quote. Beware of unbelief. 
It will rob you of your joy in God. Your peace and comfort in God. Your security in God. It will leave you wandering in the wilderness. And it will bring the discipline of God upon you. Let's still ask another question this morning. Real quickly here. We know the need for God's discipline and the need is our own sinful hearts. We're not perfect. The reason is because we act out of those sinful hearts. And we submit to our own sinful wills too much, too often. The nature of God's discipline is to drive home the point not to do those things we shouldn't do. But what is the goal of God's discipline? What's the point? What is God's goal in disciplining us in this life? I'll ask the question that I brought up earlier. Is God a cosmic killjoy? Because many people think that God is a no fun kind of guy, right? I don't want to come to Christianity because God doesn't allow anything fun to happen. There are Christians that have mistaken God's discipline for God not allowing this kind of fun or that kind of fun. So what is the whole point of God's discipline in our life? And contrary to popular, secular thought, God is not just sitting in heaven waiting to zap us like ants any time we do something He doesn't approve of. Contrary to some Christian thought, God is not sitting in heaven going over our long list of sins and waiting to zap us for each and every little thing that we do. Although He could do that. No. God has a very good and a very specific purpose in the discipline of His children. I you to take your Bibles and open them. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. That way I can hear the rustling of your pages and know you're still awake. Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews has something very important to say to us about discipline. Particularly God's discipline. And what it means for us as New Testament Christians in the church on this side of the cross. Look in Hebrews 12 verse 5. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. End quote. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall not we much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful 
rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This passage of Scripture it points out several important things about God's discipline to us. Number one, it reminds us, God's discipline reminds us of our status as children in God's family. That's the argument being used, right? What father doesn't discipline their children? And so God, as our Heavenly Father, disciplines us to show His fatherly love, His fatherly care, His fatherly compassion. Just as when you discipline your children, you do it out of love, care, and compassion. To train them up, make them good children, protect them, set them in boundaries. The second thing, this author points out in the passage, God disciplines us for our own good. Again, just as when a child is disciplined for doing something that is dangerous, God disciplines us to set up safety boundaries for us. Keep us from wandering down paths of destruction. God's discipline of Zacharias, specifically in the passage we look at this morning, protected him from falling into the pit of despair and doubt, didn't it? Zechariah would have been continued to allow, allowed to continue in his doubt and unbelief. Where would he be at the end of his life? Well, God protected him by disciplining him. The third thing we see in this passage in Hebrews 12 is that God disciplines us so that we may share in His holiness. That's verse 10. God's discipline brings us in line with God's character that we may become more like God and more enjoy God. Verse 11 there in Hebrews 12 says that for those trained, those who learn from God's discipline, well then it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness in their life. So God's discipline has a great and a specific purpose behind it, right? To make us holy and to make us righteous. And church, that is totally for our good. But the condition is we must learn from it. Recognize it. Understand it. And grow from God's discipline. I must highlight at this point the difference between discipline and destruction. Because some confuse God's destruction as God's discipline. And still some think that God's discipline is destruction. What is the difference between the two? Because there is a rather important difference. God's discipline is something that is only reserved for God's children. Only God's children get God's discipline. Those born-again believers are the only ones who can come to God as a father, be disciplined by God as a father into more holiness and more righteousness. That's part of our sanctification. For those who are not children of God, they do not have discipline. They have destruction. 
you need to understand this. One day, one day God will gather all the weeds, all the tares in the midst of the wheat, will gather them into the barn and burn them. There is coming a day when all of those who do not know God as Savior and Lord, who do not give their life to Him in faith and repentance and find salvation in Christ, there is coming a day when they will be punished for eternity in hell. That's not discipline. That is destruction. And that is not a temporary punishment. That is an eternal punishment. And it is a right and a just punishment for all who have sinned. And who has sinned? Every human being on the face of the earth. Only those who come to faith in Christ can be disciplined by God to grow in holiness. And that discipline is good. All of those who are not saved will be destroyed in hell forever. That's an important difference. God's discipline is not destruction. And God's destruction is not discipline. God's destruction is doom forever. But there's hope, isn't there, church? And that leads me to the last point of dealing with Zechariah and Elizabeth here in their message from the angel. Verses 24 and 25. God fulfills His promise. God fulfills His promise. Verse 24, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months kept herself hidden, but rejoiced that God removed her reproach. She conceived with a child. And as we're going to look at later as we go through Luke, we'll have that child. God fulfills His promise. He didn't write Zechariah off. And let me be honest, I would have. If I was fully capable of doing something and offered a great blessing to Zechariah and he doubted me, I'd have said, I'm done with you. I'll go find a more worthy candidate. But that's not who God is, is it? So that's not what God does. Paul said in 2 Timothy, even if we're faithless, God remains faithful. So in spite of Zechariah's doubt, God fulfilled His promise to Zechariah. Elizabeth conceived and had a child. But even more than that, God was faithful at the cross, wasn't He? And God fulfilled His promise in sending Jesus. The difference between discipline and destruction is that destruction is for the unbelievers who go to hell forever. But there's hope because God fulfills His promise most notably in Jesus. That He did provide a way of salvation. Long ago, many years ago, God promised a Messiah who would come and take away the sins of the world. And He fulfilled that promise through sending His Son, Jesus, right? Who what? Was born like us? lived like us, only perfect without sin, and then went to the cross on my behalf, died my death, buried in my grave, and rose on my behalf that I could be with God forever if I only come to Him in belief and faith and repentance. I did nothing. brought nothing to the table. I couldn't 
beg God enough. His justice, His wrath demand that sin be punished, yet God loved us so much that He sent Christ to take that just punishment on our behalf. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't worthy enough. I didn't incur God's love enough. Nothing in me was desirable. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. While I was still rebellious and against God, Christ came for me. There's hope for all of you who are under the destruction of God. You can repent and be saved. Because God, just like He fulfills His promise with Zechariah, fulfilled His promise in sending a Savior. That we can know God. Even Jesus said in John 6, 35 and 36, All who come to Me, I will never cast out. And here's the reality this morning. Some of you have doubted your salvation. Some of you are sitting there this morning doubting your salvation. You're identifying with Zechariah. You're plagued with unbelief. You're unsure. And you know, maybe for the first time, that you're not under God's discipline. You're under God's destruction. But praise God that even you can be saved. You may know nothing of holiness. You may know nothing of righteousness or forgiveness or peace or anything that I've talked about today. You may know nothing of what it means to truly offend God by doubting Him. And maybe you have finally realized this morning that I can't fool myself any longer. I'm not a Christian. But today, you may surrender your life to Christ. Behold, today is the day of salvation. The door is open with Christ extending His arms for you. And the doubt and unbelief that you've been plagued with for so long can be reconciled now. The conviction you're feeling burning in your heart that you're not a Christian can be taken care of now. Maybe some of, some of you are believers this morning here. Know some of you are. And you have been doubting. Maybe today you've realized for the first time the significance and the disrespect that there is to doubt God and His Word. And maybe you need to come and repent today and trust in God again. Make things right with God. Praise Him for His truthfulness, His trustworthiness, that what He says in Scripture is always true and right. Let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day of repentance. Let today be the day of healing. Let today be the day of faith. And let us beware of doubt.